Hey everyone, and welcome to Blacklight. This is a podcast that's dedicated to breaking stereotypes and finding out what people of color are doing that's interesting and unique. Today's podcast, I have Imade Borja. She is behind the awesome Depressed While Black social media and other platforms content. She has a really powerful story about growing up in South Central LA and dealing with suicidal thoughts, overwhelm, and a lot of depression. She's going to talk about her struggles with mental illness, um, why it's not simply a white disease, and the surprising group that she found commonality in. Enjoy! First of all, Amade, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm really excited to have you on here. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about yourself and about how Depressed While Black came about. Um, well, I was just trying to live. That was really, you know, my goal. Um, I dealt with a lot of suicidal thoughts and suicidal behavior connected to uh, being unemployed. Um, I'm 30, but I've been off and on unemployed for about three years. And I kind of assumed that, you know, dealing with suicidal thoughts was just kind of a natural symptom of of being unemployed. And that once I started my graduate program at USC in Los Angeles, that it would pretty much go away. And I found that it actually got worse. I have this bad habit of taking on a lot of work and trying to kind of dig myself out of the hole of depression and take on way too much responsibility. So in 2012, I was doing pretty much two short documentaries at the same time, all by myself. I was dealing with a, a, I know, and I was dealing with a professor who was a middle-aged man, a middle-aged white man, and I didn't really understand at the time that um, because I never grew grew up with a father, that when a, a, a man that is kind of a father-age man expresses disapproval, I just get debilitated by that. And I did understand that, you know, there were some wounds left by, by my father of rejection that made it difficult for me to handle disapproval because I felt like it was another form of rejection. So I'm struggling with these two short documentaries. I don't know what I'm doing. And the second one that I did was about a rap group that I grew up with. Uh, listening to and they were like my heroes they were like you know the Avengers or Justice League you know they were amazing MCs that shaped my understanding of who I am and the way in which I interact with the world so this project was very important to me and it was just very cumbersome you're dealing with uh, maybe a 13 member group and the main guy is kind of the kind of the narrator of the the story the main character and I was supposed to go uh, travel an hour away to uh, one of his uh, shows, and, you know, unfortunately at the show, uh, I found out that I can't film. So I went an hour out there, and I couldn't film. And for some reason, I was just devastated by that. I felt, I don't know, I just felt like all the work that I was doing just meant nothing in that moment. And so from that hour of driving, I just wanted to die. And so I drove recklessly. I sped on the highway back to Los Angeles. And that was kind of the wake-up call for me that uh, I need help and I need consistent help, not just a little drop-in at the, the college 
counseling center, but I need to really get on this. And so when I went to the college counseling center, again, crying, unable to look on the therapist in the eye, um, they brought two therapists because I was that, that, that much of a mess. My goodness. And they told me that I needed to uh, go to the hospital and that the campus police will take me to the hospital. And in that moment, I stopped thinking about myself and how messed up I was depression-wise. And I started thinking, okay, like, I don't want to get abused by the police because I was living at the time in South Central. And as you know, USC is a really, in a really poor area. And so, you know, it, it's, it's not surprising to, you know, have helicopters hover over your house and shake your house while you're trying to go to sleep and having the helicopter light shine in your house or hear the people in the helicopter shouting, you know, put your hands up or whatever. Oh You're pretty much living in a war zone in South Central LA. And so my first reaction when they said the campus police had to take me to the hospital is that they're trying to take me to jail. And so my goal at that point wasn't even my mental wellness. It was just trying to fight them off as two counselors so that they don't, you know, drag me away because I knew that if I go to this mental hospital, I'm going to have to take a leave of absence. And I didn't want to go back home. That was the place where I dealt with suicidal thoughts. That was the place where I felt the most alone. So I was able to fight them off enough to uh, just get a therapist. And the therapist that I had told me pretty much that, you know, you have clinical depression. And that was the first time just in December 2012 that I was told, like, hey, this is, this is what you have. You don't have, you know, garden variety sadness. This is something that's serious and it's something that can take your life. And so over the course of that semester, the spring semester, I started really trying to, you know, patch myself up. I started uh, talking to my classmates about what I was dealing with. And I just had this kind of support system that has been waiting all along to help me. I just needed to ask for help. And I got some great advice from them because some of them have been dealing with depression since adolescent and they understand, you know, how I feel. And um, it was just a blessing. My, my professor was so supportive of me. Um, I, I eventually got on medication after dealing with a lot of apprehension about medication because of my religious upbringing. And I, I did this like healing prayer with this house of prayer in Pasadena called Pie Hop. And, you know, he led me through all these memories of hurt and, wanted me to see God, the presence of God in these memories and how God was there. And at the end of all these memories that I had, he was just like, you need to get on medication. And if it wasn't for this um, minister telling me I need to get on medication, I probably wouldn't be on it now. So it was just kind of like me pursuing all these things that can heal me and finding out that the things that can heal me aren't the things that I expected. You know, I didn't expect for him to say that. I was hoping, you know, after this prayer, I'll be fine. He's telling me, you need to get on meds. My father was schizophrenic. And when he got on meds, I got my dad back. So yeah. it, was, it was an eye-opening experience to realize that, you know, I don't know everything. And just because I grew up in a religious home and everyone says, you know, if you, if you don't only seek prayer, there's something that's deficient in your spirituality. But what I was finding are people who are spiritual telling me, you know, this is the route you need to take. You need to get help. And so, yeah, I got on meds and got more stable. I was in therapy and it was perfect. I felt great. 
<laughs> you know, I felt <laughs> awesome. But the thing is, is that when you're a grad student, you're constantly in a state of flux. You're constantly moving. So I went from this stable place to going to London for the summer and having an internship there and getting very sick and getting very depressed. And then I went from there to Columbia and I was shocked by um, the racially insensitive comments that I was given uh, when I was presenting my, my work. And I just kind of reached this point where I was like, I have nothing to lose. I'm depressed. I can't, I can't participate in social functions. I might as well write about it because I don't know anything else to write about. And that's where uh, Depressed While Black was born. It was originally a thesis that I created beginning in spring semester of 2013. Um, and so Depressed While Black was just every, every month, I'm just sharing what I'm going through, dealing with depression. And a lot of times it's in real time. So I'm talking about what's happening in the writing workshop <laughs> and how like <laughs> it hurt me. So it was very meta, you know, you're presenting, you're in a writing workshop and you're talking about how the writing workshop is triggering. But I, I really appreciated doing it because I started seeing my classmates talk about depression. I started seeing them become more honest and open. And it just felt as if there was just this weight that was collectively, you know, being taken off our shoulders. So I turned that into a thesis. I turned that in uh, in 2015 at Columbia. And, you know, I expected to get a job. I was interning in a lot of different places in New York City. And it didn't happen. I didn't get a job. And I, you know, that summer after graduation, I got really, really sad. And, you know, in a moment of just complete uh, rapid cycling. And I'm not bipolar, but I do deal with the rapid emotional swings that is common with bipolar disorder. And so, yeah, um, I, you know, attempted and it wasn't necessarily an attempt. It was more of a suicidal gesture because I did mm -hmm. have a lot more pills that I could have taken. So, yeah, that was definitely a huge thing. And then I ended up um, in a mental hospital and I found that that was a very traumatic experience. So all of these things that I talk about and that I experienced, I put that into my writing and put that into my blog. And when I started to realize that so many of us as Black people go through this, I started recognizing the responsibility I have to talk about it. Because I feel as though just because you go through something doesn't mean you have to publicly talk about it. But I do feel that for me personally, I have a responsibility to share so that other people don't have to share in the sense of like, some people are not ready to share publicly that they're dealing with bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, because they're just trying to survive. And I just feel like people like me who, you know, have gotten on meds, have gotten relatively stabilized, who have a support system, who has therapy, I do feel a personal responsibility to use the privilege that I have to speak up about this stuff so that when people are struggling and maybe they're too weak to tell their friends, you know, how they're feeling, maybe they can share an article I shared or maybe they can share a blog post or a video that I've done. So I just feel like if that is my personal responsibility is to destigmatize depression to the point where it's treated like a common cold. And I find inspiration with the AIDS community, the AIDS advocacy community, because they started from a place in the 80s where people were wanting to kill people 
who had HIV or AIDS because they were so scared that they would get it. And yeah. over the course of 30, 40 years of just chipping away at the stigma, you know, we're at the place where we are now where we see ads for PrEP at a bus station or a subway station. You know, we're at where we're at now where people with HIV are considered to live the same, you know, lifetime and lifespan as those without HIV. But it took about 40 years. And so I try to to have that multi-generational perspective when it comes to destigmatizing depression because it's going to take a while. But I just find strength from the AIDS advocacy community that you just got to keep chipping away. You might not see it in your lifetime, but you're creating progress that you can pass on to the next generation. So that's kind of all of what inspires the Trestle Black. Wow, that is incredible that you found a parallel between the mental health community and the AIDS HIV community. I have never thought about it that way. That's amazing. I, I honestly believe that they paved the way for us in ways that I, I don't think we fully can comprehend or imagine. I think, you know, I draw strength from them because the queer community, community has always been at the forefront of every social justice movement. And we can go back to, you know, Baynard Rustin and how he organized um, the March on Washington. It, it wouldn't have existed without his logistical planning. So, yeah, I think, I think the mental health community can learn a lot from the HIV and AIDS community. Because, I mean, it was paranoia, the type of stigma that was surrounding HIV and AIDS. And you see some of that today. You see a little bit of people thinking that, you know, depression is this contagious disease. And so you have to, you know, get away from these people. You can't be around these people. And you have, even on dating apps, and this is what I've experienced, you know, you have people in their bio and they're like positive vibes only, you know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, no, no sad people around me. I don't want nothing, none of that. You know, that's definitely, I feel like a sign of them thinking that, you know, sadness is something that is contagious. I do think that people, that we do have empathy and we have the ability to experience the feelings of other people and we do have to make sure we protect ourselves. But this idea that only you know, the happiest people are allowed to be around me. It's kind of similar in some ways to this fear of like this hyper contagion of HIV or AIDS. So I, I just think personally that the instant gratification that we hope for in the mental health community, it may never happen. And I think that if we see mental health advocacy as, as a multi-generational work, I think it would help us be less frustrated because it gets easy to get frustrated as a mental health advocate because you're the, you know, you're the punching bag. Essentially, you're signing up to be a punching bag for people to express their ignorance about, you know, depression. And so you really do have to kind of take a step back and be like, I'm not doing this just so that I can get a like or a view. I'm doing this so that the next generation can be open and honest about their depression and not feel like they're going to be judged or looked down upon. That's incredible. And the reason why I I sought you out is because you talk a lot about how Black folks think, and this is a stereotype Mm -hmm. that I wanted to break, is that it's seen as a a white disease. Why do you think that is? Where do you think that came from? You know what I'm trying to do now in my advocacy work is I'm trying to move from a problem-based advocacy to a black affirming advocacy. Mm -hmm. And that is the challenge for me because I typically, I get paid 
to talk about what's wrong with black people. But it's interesting. I don't get paid to talk about what's wrong with white people. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and I'm like, wait a second. I think we should talk about what's wrong with white people because we wouldn't think that depression was a white disease if we were treated with care and we were treated as if we are fragile. And if we, if we were, were treated as if we have a vibrant intellectual life. And I think the problem with the idea that depression is a white person's disease, the reason why I felt that way and a lot of people felt that way is that nobody really told us that we're fragile. We've been told white people are fragile, that they can't handle a day in our shoes, which I believe they can handle a day in our shoes. <laughs> but we've been told that like we're tough and we're strong, but that we have no weakness in us. And I think we have to reevaluate that and treat ourselves as human beings. We're not completely strong. Like there is a mix of so many different things in us. You know what I'm saying? And I feel like we, we oversimplify ourselves and we say we're only this one thing. You know, we're only strong. We're only resilient. You know, we're only unstoppable. But we can be so many other different things. We can be... We can be weak and we can be fragile and we can be vulnerable and we can also be strong. And I think that is the the reason why I think we assign depression to white people is because we don't think that we're (laughs) complicated enough as human beings to like have complex mental like issues. So, but that's something that, like I said, that's something that begins with white people. They were the ones who stole our people, they were the ones that placed burdens on our backs and no human being should ever be, be had placed upon them. They were the ones that deprived us of health care. They deprived us of adequate uh, living, uh, quality of life. They deprived us of the ability of having leisure time. And I think that is also huge in, in the trauma that we have yeah. is that we were deprived of being able to rest. And I mean, you see that now, like, we joke about this on Twitter about how our black mamas hate to see us rest for five seconds. You know, like <laughs> we can't, we can't even sleep in a bed for like 15 minutes without them giving us a broom or a vacuum or something <laughs> to do. You know, and sometimes we would tell our parents like, mom, like I'm bored. Like, you know, what can I do? That's not work. And I mean, they're just like, look, you can, you can sweep the house. You can clean out the refrigerator. You can clean this and clean that. It's like black people don't know how to rest. And I think it's related to the fact that we have a traumatic background where we weren't allowed to rest. We always had to work from sun up to sun down. And I do think that lack of leisure, that lack of rest makes us think that we're indestructible. But like, no, we're teetering on the brink of, of collapse as black yeah. people. Like we are teetering on the brink of a complete mental breakdown. And I think the faster we understand that, that collectively the police brutality and the way in in which it's constantly being loose. I'm surprised we're not worse off than we are now. And I think if we collectively understand that there are mental health consequences for the trauma that we experience, I think we can be so much stronger. But we have to acknowledge our weakness to be strong, you know? Yeah. Now, in your work, what have you encountered? Do you feel like the problem is that people think that 
people of color aren't affected by mental illness, or you think the bigger problem is just in general that mental illness isn't considered a quote unquote real health problem? I mean, I think it's, I think one, we got to start with the systemic barriers um, because yeah. there's some really serious systemic barriers when it comes to being poor. I mean, literally, I feel like being poor is, it should be a disability. Like, because you don't have access to things that other people access. I mean, I remember waiting all day in a clinic to get seen so that I could get a, a prescription for antidepressants. Yeah. So how in the world can I wait all day if I have a job that mm-hmm. pays me $10, $7 an hour? That's food that's being taken off my plate to go to this mental health clinic. And then you're like, okay, what if I'm in a mental health crisis? I can't be treated right away because I don't have the money. So I may be, you know, rapid cycling in the actual lobby. So what, you know, that's going to be a problem. If I'm dealing with paranoia, I'm dealing with all sorts of psychosis. And because I'm poor, I got to sit in this clinic all day. I'm going to get worse. You know, there's all sorts of things that keep us from being well. And I think what it begins with is access. We don't have access. and And even if we have access, we don't know it. And it's frustrating to me that there are a lot of mental health services, especially in New York City, um, NYC well. I mean, it's, it's a, I think it's um, pretty much a, like a, almost like a two-on-one number that you can call and get mm-hmm. access to mental health services. New York is incredible for that because First Lady Shirlane uh, McCray, I believe, she like is, is just pioneering that. So there's resources out there. There's a lot of times we don't have the access. Our parents don't have the access because they were told they're not worthy of access. So it's a generational thing that we have to, you know, we have to get over the fact that we have a lack of black mental health professionals. We have to really expand our imagination because I feel like our imagination is too limited. We don't envision ourselves as mental health professionals. We envision ourselves as basketball players, football players, musicians, Mm-hmm. you know as kids but we, we need to have kids that dream of being a psychiatrist we need to have kids that dream of being a therapist and we need to see black mental health professionals you know doing their thing and so I think it's a challenge of access and it's also a challenge of a, of a limited imagination we need to have representation so that we see that being a mental healer is possible so yeah it's a complicated issue and it's a lot of generational stereotypes that get passed down. But if we can just expand the access and expand our imagination, I think we can get to where we need to be. That's awesome. So this is a question I kind of wanted to say for last because it's, it's a tough question. Yeah. But if there is someone right now who is listening right now and struggling with depression or they have a friend or family member who is, what do you think should be their first step and you can you know you can take into account if that person doesn't have a lot of money or you know if they do what do you think they should do right now when they stop listening to this are are they in a mental health crisis yes i'd say they're struggling with depression or anxiety or something like that something almost that needs to be immediately taken care of it's a challenge because first of all i want to say that they're enough and that there's nothing wrong with them. If they don't do anything, they're still worthy of love and they're worthy of respect. Um, because typically when I'm in a mental health crisis, I feel like I can't do anything and that I'm not good enough. 
and I beat myself up for not being able to do more. So I do want to establish the fact that if they don't do anything, that they're loved and it's really hard and I empathize with what they go through. But I would say the first thing is to speak a mental health professional and do that probably at the same time in tandem with, you know, being honest with your friends. Um, I've dealt with my, my best friend getting burnt out because I relied on her more than a mental health professional. Yeah. And I expected her to be a mental health professional when she's got her own problems to deal with. And so I would say instead of leaning completely on your friends, make sure that you're seeking a mental health professional at the same level or if not more. So I would say, you know, call either a suicide hotline or just a, a typical mental health hotline so that they can get you connected to uh, services in that area. I would say also, like, if you can't get up, a lot of times I can't get up. I can't mm-hmm. really talk to anybody on the phone. I'm too drained. There is therapy for black girls. They have the list of therapy uh, therapists. Psychology Today, if you put an African-American therapist, open path, um, you can do that. Sometimes uh, what I do for more privacy Instead of calling a suicide hotline, I do a crisis text line, and there's 741 741. Mm-hmm. And they can also like help you kind of connect you to the services or just connect you to the part of yourself that wants to live. That's typically what they do. They're, they're typically a, a stabilizer, and sometimes you just need to be stabilized. So I would say that. And if you know, just look around you. If you if you're if you're a grad student or a college student. The counseling center is just right there, so you can do that. Sometimes at your job, they give you like maybe six free uh, therapy sessions as a part of their like EEOC program. So you might be able to get free stuff through that. And also some um, programs like universities, they offer free or reduced therapy sessions because they have interns there, graduate interns that are starting out as therapists. So you might be able to get free sessions or really cheap sessions through that. So I would say make sure that you have a suicide hotline uh, if you're really suicidal and then just like look around you. Don't feel as if you have to, you know, go far to get help. Sometimes mental health resources are right where you are. So that, that's what I would say. And if, if you can't do that, I mean, sometimes the Facebook status can hold you over. Just say, hey, I'm not doing great. And then, you know, have your friends just kind of cheer you on. So, you know, there's so many different ways to, to get help. But I think that as you get help, you start to realize what help works for you. So it's, it's not just you getting help. It's, it's you learning yourself and you learning what coping mechanism that your body responds the best mm-hmm. to. Oh, man, these are incredible resources. Thank you so much for being that detailed and how people can get help. So finally, what are you working on right now? Is there anything that you're going to take as a next step in the depressed while black journey or in your mental health advocacy? What's, what's next for you? I wanted to speak at more places and I want to just, I want to speak in more places from a black affirming approach mm-hmm. and not a, a problem based approach. Um, so I, I think I was, well, think I was invited to speak at Furman university. So I have a, a speaking gig wow. uh, later this month for that. And I'm going to be talking about how blackness is not a mental health problem um, there and just kind of zooming out and addressing the fact that um, 
black people have been healers since, you know, since the ancient Egyptians. We have always been mental healers. It's just the fact that that type of history has been ignored and erased because black people have been presented as inferior. So if it contradicts that narrative, a lot of times those stories get put in the back burner. So I want to start talking more about the black mental health pioneers that really Mm -hmm. set a template for what we should be doing now. So yeah, uh, that's kind of what I'm working on. And, you know, I'm open to more speaking gigs, you know, hope, you know, (laughs) depressedwhileblack at gmail.com, hit me up for any type of booking (laughs) request. But that's pretty much it, you know, just being with my people and talking with folks on my Facebook page and just being open and honest and sharing community with them. I would love also to talk about Brandy's Never Say Never album, 20 years. I'm a huge Brandy fan. I don't know. Are you a Brandy fan? <laughs> I am a Brandy fan. I'm more of a fan of her first, you know, self-title album, but yes, she's, yes. she's great. So it's, it's going to be 20 years and never say never this oh year, God. 2018. Oh and I really want to revisit that, that album. Um, wow. I think that she was dealing with depression. It just has hmm. a, a very heavy, emotionally dense feel that she was wrestling with some depression. Now, I don't fully know that, but I would love to write about it and explore how the depression that I experienced interacts with that album and why huh. I feel like I'm being seen through that album. So I would love to do more stuff like that where I do a retrospective of works that I feel like explore uh, emotions related to depression and kind of bring this out because there's so many artists that talk about depression in their music, whether implicitly or explicitly, explicitly but we don't bring it up because we don't go deep enough. Yeah. So that would, I would love to do stuff like that. I'm a music journalist, so I would love to kind of combine my mental health advocacy with my music journalism work. Who knows? That would be freaking fantastic. That <laughs> sounds really fascinating. Um, so you mentioned depressedwhileblack at gmail.com. Where else can we find you? Um, I'm on Twitter at depressedwblack at uh, Twitter, um, I am depressedwhileblack.tumblr.com, and yeah, um, facebook.com backslash, I believe, depressedwhileblack. Okay. Yeah. So this is kind of my sneaky way of getting more show ideas, but is there yeah. any kind of stereotype that you feel like needs to be broken within the black community or people of color in general? Stereotype? I mean, I dress a lot. I'm trying to think of another stereotype. Yeah. I think that that religion is like the only form of healing, that mm. there's not other pathways to healing that are comprehensive. I think a lot of the things that we deal with, a lot of coping mechanisms we deal with are just outdated because we have more resources than we had when we were slaves, you know? So yeah, it worked, you know, when we were slaves to really call on the name of Jesus and that's it. But there's so many more resources that I feel like God gave us that we're not exhausting because we're still living in this place of lack. And I feel like, yeah, black folks, I mean, it's going to, I mean, there's studies that say it takes like over 200 years to get to the wealth that white people have. Yeah. But I still think that we have more resources than our past generation. And we need to embrace these new resources and realize that our past generation fought for the privileges that we have now. So let's use it. You know, they fought so that we can go to therapy. They fought so that 
we can have access to medical services and get meds and, you know, do yoga and all sorts of stuff that they couldn't do, you know, when they was, when they was alive. So I just feel like, I think the stereotype is the thinking that we can only use one thing to get well. We have so many resources that are at our disposal and it doesn't make us less black to use them. Oh man, this was so impactful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you responding to my email very quickly and just bringing all of this incredible knowledge and life experience to what you're doing into this podcast. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. I typically don't talk this much, but when somebody listens as well as you do, I just, I just <laughs> let it all out. So thank you. You're welcome. I, I think that people are going to hear your story and be inspired. So I don't want to talk over that or anything like that at all. It's an honor to be here. Thank you so much. No problem. All right, everybody, just want to say thank you once again to Amade Borja of Depressed While Black for giving her really incredible story. I hope you don't mind that I didn't interject a lot. I'm hoping that this podcast will be more about me listening and not about me talking. I will probably do some podcasts that are just me, but I'm still working on those right now. And don't forget, if you love this podcast... Check me out at my Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Walisha. That's W-I-L-L-I-E-S-H-A. You'll be supporting some really awesome podcast editors that I'm using. And also don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. That's a lot of steps, but I know you can do it. Thanks, guys.